21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast. Uh, I'm very happy today to have my friend Tim Fletcher with me, and this is the second time, Tim, that I have recorded live with somebody and not on Skype. So Tim and I right now are at Badali Bar and Grill in downtown Toronto, and the manager has given us a nice quiet corner of the restaurant. Despite it being a Friday afternoon and it's quite busy, we're in a back corner that's very quiet. So I'm going to let Tim introduce himself, and you'll learn more about Tim as the podcast goes on. So Tim? Well, thanks very much, Andy. It's a pleasure to see you again, mate. Even though we've, uh, I guess, been in touch with each other over two years, I think. This is only the second time that we've uh, been with one another face-to-face, so it's, um, it's great to be here, and thanks for inviting me to be on the podcast. Um, a little background about myself. I, I grew up in Australia um, and did my undergraduate degree there, and then I moved to Canada when I was about 24. Um, my wife won that argument, and uh, so I've lived here uh, ever since about uh, 2000. Um, I did my master's degree at an Australian university, though, um, being based in Canada, and I was doing that at the same time as I was teaching in a, in a school in suburban Toronto, uh, and I taught uh, high school health and physical education for about five years there while doing my master's. Um, in 2007, I started my PhD at uh, the University of Toronto, and um, I was looking at... Uh, primary school teachers and how they learned to teach phys ed and what their experiences of phys ed was and how that impacts their thoughts about learning to teach physical education. Um, I've been based at two universities in Canada, Memorial University for two years, and I've been at Brock University since uh, 2013. And yes, getting back to, uh, we met in person last summer. That's right. Yeah, you came down from... So you live in St. Catharines? or where? Uh, close to St. Catharines, yeah. yeah Grimm's. So you came over and you met Eli and the boys, and you didn't meet Neela at that time. She was no. gone. But, um, so it's great to meet in person. And, and you took the train in today from St. Catharines uh, to, to kind of meet up again, so that's great. Um, so talk a little bit about your original university training. Was in Melbourne? No, uh, it was um, at Charles Sturt University, which is uh, about three hours west of Sydney, yeah, country New South Wales, Um, and I did a degree in human movement um, in the mid-90s, I suppose. Um, I did some backpacking after I finished my undergraduate degree before I really decided that teaching was what I wanted to do. So that was like 97 or 90? Yeah, I finished up in 97 and then went back and did my... Um, teaching certification in 2000. Yeah. Dean Dudley actually worked at that university yes. for a number of years. Yeah, though we didn't overlap. Uh, I finished up before he started there. Yeah. So, yeah. Don't uh, know whether that was a good thing. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Is that a good thing or, or a bad thing? But you know Dean. And, yes. Uh, you, you've met him how many times? Uh, just once. Yeah. yeah, in Banff. Yeah. Yeah. 
and Doug Gladdy and Lee Schaefer was there as well. Yes, yeah, yeah, quite a lot of folks there. So yeah. Um, yeah, you get to meet a few people uh, on the circuit, as they say, yeah. and just in conversation with people on social media or through email. Yeah, that might be a direction that we go with this uh, conversation because I like asking uh, researchers and practitioners how becoming a socially connected educator has impacted their practice. So that's maybe a direction we can go later, but. Um, for for now, why don't we begin with, um, you know, uh, describe the work, specifically the work that kind of inspires you and that has driven you over the last few years. Uh, I guess all of my research work, and my research work is informed by my teaching that I do with um, mostly pre-service teachers, people who want to become physical education teachers or coaches. You can think of that really broadly, not necessarily in schools, but I guess teaching movement to, to young people. Um, so a lot of my research is on the teaching that I do, and I'm really interested in how people learn to become teachers, and that has to do with the specific strategies through which they learn, but it also, um, I guess, in, in a big way, incorporates their identity and how they identify as a teacher of physical education and that has to do with their experiences of physical education when they were growing up because quite often we sort of project ourselves onto our teachers yeah and so from our experiences in schools we think oh well if that's what a teacher of physical education does I can do that or I couldn't do that or I have to do learn to do this and that and the other thing and yeah. And how that, those experiences when they come to university, how they can be beneficial but also how they can sort of be unpacked a little bit and thought about in a critical way. How do you address that? Uh, a lot of reflective techniques. Um, I try through my own practice to describe what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and then also say, well, this is how I did it. How would you have learned that? When you were at school, what would have been the typical approach that your teachers might have taken? Yeah. What might be the pros and cons of each? Uh, I certainly don't want yeah. to paint my practices perfect by yeah. any means. That's what we were talking about pre-show. So we started downstairs in the Irish pub, <laughs> but it was a little too noisy yeah. on a Friday We weren't afternoon. there for too long. Yeah. Just <laughs> so we came upstairs to the Italian uh, restaurant. But um, we were talking pre-show about, um, I guess now is a good time to maybe describe I wasn't I was going to ask you later on but in the pre-show you described um, one of your favorite books right uh, but I just want to talk about what we had discussed as we were you you described your book and it was that idea what you had said is you you think out no you don't um, when you're teaching your students you will take them through your own thought process yes which is essentially thinking out loud yeah. and to share that, that narrative of, of how you're thinking and why you're thinking it. So your inner self-talk and making it out loud and explicit, which is so powerful. So that will be a part of leading into your favorite book. But why don't you talk about one of the books that's impacted you and then that idea of thinking out loud. Yeah, so I guess that both merge into each other. Like the, when you originally asked me what book had what book would I recommend or have I read a number of times? Um, 
the one that first came to mind was A School Teacher by Dan Lorty, which was written in 1975. Um, and he talks about um, the recruits to teacher education and uh, how people who want to become teachers have experienced teaching for 12 years. They've been in classrooms. And, and the figure that he uses is, is 13,000 hours. So, of observation yes, of their teachers. So, any student that's gone through to grade 12 has been exposed to teachers in a pretty intimate way um, for about 13,000 hours. So they come to teacher education thinking, quite rightly, that they know a little bit about teaching. Yeah. But as we spoke about, what that hides is that those 13,000 hours have only been the teacher on the stage, so to speak. Yeah. Um, they don't see the planning that goes into it, the thoughts behind the decisions that a teacher makes, why they chose that approach, yeah. um, how the cultural setting that the teachers and students are in impacts upon, um, how they go about their role and all of those sorts of things. Yeah. And so people who come to teaching are in a pretty unique position because people who become lawyers may think that they have a general sense of what a lawyer does, but they would never claim to know that, oh, I could be a lawyer based on yeah. my watching of uh, LA Law <laughs> yeah. or whatever it might be. Um, so teaching's quite unique in that sense. So they, but, they, they have, um, so what I'm hearing you say is sometimes they bring in these cemented views of what teaching is. Yeah. And then based upon their own personalities, they kind of, extract what applies what they feel applies to them and what they feel they know about teaching and then they roll forward with teaching in that way yep. but you're there to challenge that right and like you said you challenge that by reflection so do you want to go a little deeper into that yeah you've summed that up really nicely um so uh, the, the second book that that i use a lot is by uh, john lockram um, and the book is called Developing a Pedagogy of Teacher Education, and that is for people who work with prospective teachers um, to talk about how our teaching about teaching could be improved um, or could be thought about, I suppose. And just because pre-service teachers come to our classroom and, again, observe us teaching doesn't mean that they then learn what teaching is about and the decisions that go into it. And so it was from his work and from some exposure to uh, my supervisor uh, through my doctorate, Claire Kosnick, through observing her teaching and talking to her a lot, um, really going into the reasons behind why we're doing what we're doing. So maybe it's I'm using small groups in this situation because this is what I'm trying to do, this is the outcome that I'm so trying again, to achieve. So again, saying that out loud to the kids, so yeah. you, you are modelling that. Yeah, but yeah. not only in saying, well, this is what I'm doing, but then asking them, like, is this a good thing? Like, How did this impact you as a learner? Did you enjoy that? How would you have done it if you were in schools? What are the pros and cons? What, are, what alternatives could I have taken to make that uh, richer experience for you? So we try to really talk about the teaching process rather than just coming in and going, okay, we're doing small groups. Here's how you do it. You know, <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, you go over there and which is very we'll take much direct involved. instruction. Exactly. Yeah. So we really try and, uh, well, I try and involve them in the thinking of about teaching um, as much as possible.
Yeah. And that's, uh, it's easier said than done. <laughs> it's really quite challenging at times. And oftentimes I don't, I don't know the reasons why I do what we're doing. Yeah. I think probably a lot of teachers could relate yeah. to that too. Another thing we talked about, and this is in line with what we're discussing right now, is is the idea, and you know, in my role in consulting, I've observed, I guess, full-time the past year, I've observed lots of teachers. Yeah. But in particular, when I look at the work that I've done over the past four years, I've had a chance to go into a lot of different schools and see a lot of different teachers in action. Um, and one of the things that I've, I've noticed, and I can't say it's a generality, but I've noticed that sometimes the jocks, so the, the men and women both that are star athletes that have conquered all sports in high school, and then they go through university and they get their teaching certification and they know they want to teach PE because they have a sporty background, sometimes the, the, the practices that they use are not very sound. And I think that they bring certain biases into um, their teaching because they learned skills and sports so easily and so quickly. Inherently, they expect students to learn like they did and just to pick up on things straight away like they, they did. And they get sometimes get frustrated when the students don't pick up skills in the same way. So I try to challenge teachers to uncover the, the, the biases that they, they might hold that they're not aware of. Yeah. So I do that through questioning. Yeah. But is that something that, that you see like teachers bring, cause this is all about teachers bringing these biases with them. Yeah. So what's another way that you can really challenge them to yeah, well, become more aware? I mean, that's a, an example that's easily understood. I think that could probably apply across a number of other subject areas too. Like, just because you find mathematics really easy doesn't mean you're going to be the best math teacher that's out there. Yeah. So that might give you really good knowledge of the content so you know what's involved in spiking a volleyball or setting a, um, you know, setting something up, um, yeah. in a game yeah. or something like that. It's a really, it's really important to blend that knowledge of the content with knowledge of pedagogy. So this is why I would choose to use this approach to teach that content. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes we emphasize one over the other. We emphasize content over the pedagogy or the pedagogy, like I might just use group work all the time. Well, that's not necessarily the best approach to teach certain types of content. Yeah, uh, gymnastics, for example, wouldn't yeah. be a, a good way to teach uh, certain applications in that content area. So it's understanding how both work together. Yeah. And they call and that's been called pedagogical content knowledge. Yeah, um, but that's important. It's important to recognise that if we thought of that as a Venn diagram, that pedagogy and content don't overlap equally all the time. One might may come over the other. And that's sometimes, yeah, yeah, depending on the topic being taught, depending on the students we're working so with. So, like a shifting Venn diagram. Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, if you had to sum up, so, because I don't want to say you have a unique approach, I mean, it's, it's embraced by other physical educators and researchers, but if you had to kind of sum up, though, you, the direction you take with physical education and what's most meaningful to you about physical education. What angle do you come at the subject area from? 
Yeah, so this has been a new development and the word that, that I use, you just used a few minutes ago, which is meaningful experiences. Yeah. Um, so I've been working with uh, some colleagues in Ireland, Deirdre Nicroinine, who's at Mary Immaculate College in Ireland, and Mary O'Sullivan, who's at University of Limerick in Ireland. Um, and we've been thinking about how we teach prospective teachers how to foster meaningful experiences for learners. Uh, and we've been working with the pre-service teachers in our respective programs to try to hash that out and um, come up with some potential solutions and some <laughs> some areas that we might avoid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's really been driving the focus for the last three or four years. So a more social emotional angle, or it, like would it be would it fall under uh, teaching? Uh, Personal social responsibility. It can. It, it's it's a, a hybrid of it. Or? Yeah, it's um, a bit more all-encompassing, holistic. Yeah. Um, so we use a framework that was developed by Scott Kretschmar. Um, he's a philosopher of yeah. sport and physical education, and uh, we've written, been writing about that in, in our blog, which is fairly new to the PE blog. Which scene. is what's the name of the blog? Uh, learning about meaningful physical education. So the, I think it's meaningfulpe.wordpress.com. We have a Twitter feed, which is at meaningfulpe. Um, so that'll be in the show notes for people to check out. Thank you very much for that yeah. plug. <laughs> um, but why, why don't you kind of describe, because we had discuss, uh, discussed Kretschmar's work and, and I guess the five elements of meaning, meaningful physical activity. So that experience that, that you think is, is most important broken down into five elements. So yeah. first, just list off what those five areas would be. Yeah, so he says that meaningful physical activity experiences tend to comprise one or more of the following five elements, and that's in no particular order. Fun, social interaction, and that does, doesn't just mean hanging out with my friends. It could be yeah. learning social skills. Uh, challenge motor competence and the last one is delight and I sort of think when I think about delight I think about uh, runners high or getting caught up in the moment or you know when when you're in a school and you say okay kids it's time for phys ed and okay ah, you know running yeah. out the doors just can't wait to get into the gym yeah so delve a little deeper into that so because for many people listening fun and delight are the same thing so how would you uh, describe them as being yeah. separate in this case? I would see fun as a much more short-term um, state. Yeah. It can come and go fairly quickly, whereas delight is is a much... It requires some deep um, engagement with an experience. And for that reason, I think it's it can be quite challenging to to capture delight in one physical education lesson, it might be a sort of long-term state. So that um, usually leads, and from what I understand, I've had this conversation with Doug Gleddy as well, and as well yeah. as uh, Ash Casey, but that idea uh, of joy, joy and delight, mm -hmm. pretty much synonymous, right? I think so. Uh, but that idea of um, young people truly embracing physical activity for life requires them to find delight and joy in the activity. So... Whether I think Doug used uh, the example of skateboarding and scootering, 
but those ideas that you know nowadays you, you can sometimes see a 50 year old still on a skateboard yeah so they have embraced that as being a, a physical activity that has resonated with them that means something to them yeah but is that ultimately what you mean by delight is finding a, a long-term I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out myself to be honest yeah because from the work that we've been doing we've struggled to to identify what that might mean but some of the things that the the pre-service teachers we've been working with have said that might capture delight in some way or another was like just getting totally caught up in the moment like flow t- yeah time time ceases flow, to yeah. be yeah, yeah. Um, those sorts of things like I was just so immersed in what I was doing that I didn't care what time it was or I forgot all my worries from before class and I forgot about what I was wearing and what other people were doing I was just so immersed in the moment I, I think that's but but again i'm still trying to figure it but out. i think that's again you thinking out loud as you say this is important because as a researcher i mean practitioners sometimes have the point of view that researchers know everything right and <laughs> you're basically saying that you as even as a researcher are figuring out as you go and learning more about the specifics of the direction that you're moving, which is so important because you don't have all the answers and you're, and you're figuring it out. But when I look at delight, and I know we talked about this pre-show too, is to me, and, and this is how I see it, but again, it's, it's not, I'm not saying it is the way it is, but that idea of young people having, uh, so what they learn in PE leads to them taking action and initiative in their own lives to be physically active in ways that resonate with them, that mean something to them. Yes. But, but the ability to take action outside of PE, and a lot of PE curriculums do not allow students to take action outside of PE. Yeah. And yeah. that was another thing we were talking about before, was the, the importance of relevance. Yeah. And so unless... Students, I think, can see how they can use something in their lives. That's when they disengage. And there's been quite a lot of stuff written in both the physical education and youth sport literature um, that kids will drop PE when it becomes an elective subject or they'll drop out of youth sport when they cease to find it meaningful. Which is generally, what, 11 to 13? Yeah, or maybe 15, 14, yeah. 15. Um, yeah. And it, the lack of meaning is always cited as a major reason why they drop out. And, again, if we go back to it, how do we establish meaning then? Well, it's a, some combination of those five things. Right. And at certain times one will be higher than the other and one may not be And that's be normal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be different for everyone. You may thrive on competition, yeah. whereas I might just really get something out of being with friends or making new friends. Right. And I think it goes back to that. And, uh, again, we talked about this pre-show, but the idea of the importance of relationships and teachers building strong relationships and then identifying what it is that student needs to move forward. So what you just described is perhaps a teacher will step in and know that a student needs to be working on social interaction. So they kind of push push them to maybe work on those areas because 
This may shift. So these five, fun, social, interaction, challenge, motor competence, and delight. Is it possible for these, the, the focus to shift depending on the student oh, as well, right? Very much so. And it'll so, depend, uh, it'll shift topic area to topic area. So you're not going to start the unit by saying, okay, teachers in this, if you're co-planning, we are going to work on ensuring that all kids are challenged. This unit, make that the focus. Yeah. You might want to work on that area, but other areas will will rise and fall in, in their level of importance. Moment to moment, yeah. yeah. Like, um, I get very different meanings from uh, playing cricket, for example. Like, if, if I want to think about what makes playing cricket me or what made playing cricket for me meaningful it was related to challenge and particularly you know coming up to someone who was at the same level as myself but then again it was also about hanging out with friends when you when you're waiting your turn you know like a lot of striking and fielding games that's that's an important component is when you're batting you're sitting around waiting your turn so yeah. what well do you just sit there and twiddle your thumbs no it's like some of the best memories that I have of playing cricket were when I wasn't batting but talking with people and yeah. making friendships or going exploring around the field or those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and then if I compare that to basketball, what makes basketball meaningful for me would be developing my competence at basketball because I, yeah, I'm true. not very good at it. Yeah. Um, so having that uh, and challenging available myself to you. that way, yeah. yeah. Or using a different object and making it more fun yeah. um, through that. So it's going to change. Uh, but what um, Deirdre and Mary and I and the rest of the research team are trying to, I guess, emphasize or push, if you like, is that the idea of meaningful experiences or creating a meaningful experience becomes the main filter for how we make decisions as teachers. So... If we think about that, if we observe our students, if we talk to them, if we ask them um, what they're experiencing in, in a lesson or an activity and getting that feedback, then we can start to work with, okay, they're, they're bored with this, so I have to maybe make it more fun and I can do that by um, making the group smaller or bigger or introducing yeah. new equipment or using a different body part or whatever it might be. Um, and, and using any one of those five elements um, in combination to, to try and make it a more meaningful experience. So what would you say to people, because I know some people listening would say, okay, so what, it all sounds good, but what is it that you're assessing? So some people might come back and say, no, I, I have outcomes I have to meet. What is it that I have to assess? So if I use this model... How does assessment play into this model? Okay, so we're we're a bit reluctant and hesitant to call it a model um, at the moment. So that would be my first sort of caveat. And assessment is um, something that's that we're still trying to figure out. Um, some ideas that we've I don't think that you would necessarily change the assessment. I think you could still meet a lot of outcomes that are in provincial, state, national curricula without drastically overhauling your approach or what the students do. It's just a matter of 
perhaps these become what you prioritize and how you go about planning and developing activities. So yeah. I think you could still assess for their social development, their physical development in similar ways. Like each of the, the three domains, like physical development, cognitive and social, are all captured in one way or another in some of those criteria. Yeah. So I don't think that you would need to come up with a new assessment plan for students. It becomes a really good way of assessing your teaching and the content that you're working with. Yeah. So the, I, I think those are other things that often get swept under the rug. Yeah. Um, I think this is one of the things, and you know, you know, you've come to kind of know my teaching style. And this yeah. is why we connected. Uh, when I was teaching, I, I, we had several conversations, right? Yep. And I used Very to bring. Much the Skype in and show you the posters I was making yep. and what I was focusing on. Yep. And, and for me, um, student reflection has always played a huge part in what I, what mm -hmm. I do. But having said that, I've had teachers when I present come up and basically stonewall me right away and say, I don't have the time to do reflection. Like, you know, you're, you're take, assuming that I'm taking 20 minutes out of a 60 minute class to get them to do, to reflect is just not true. I will get them to reflect in, in generally five to seven minutes, and it's not even every lesson. But that idea that um, reflection is very qualitative. And a lot of people say that, no, you need quantitative data, quantitative data, but reflection is very much qualitative in nature. So this, to me, sounds like it would lend itself more to qualitative rather than quantitative. Uh, in terms of the data that we collect? If or, you were a teacher assessing students. Um, if you were assessing their engagement um, and if you were assessing student how they understand like, their, yeah. Yeah. Um, the way that they make meaning. Yeah. It could be, yeah, but, you know, a way that they could use quantitative data. Like motor competence is an important yeah. component there. So to be able to see their skill development on a scale or a chart might be a way that they can make meaning and by saying well, look at that, you know, I'm really uh, showing some strength in this area or that area. Which uh, is self-assessment. Right. Yeah. could be something like that or peer assessment. And yeah. being able to understand, you know, how a soccer game works can make it more meaningful to you, not necessarily as a participant but as a spectator. And that sort of comes in with this idea of physical activity as part of our culture and yeah. as our livelihood. I suppose, but the the idea too of I mean using soccer as a um, as a reference is imagine a, a kid who is incompetent in terms of soccer skills, but they just don't have the skills. However, learning the game and refereeing, they are super active. Yeah, they're running up and down the pitch. The referees are just as as fit as the players oftentimes. Yep. So, would you promote that type of thing if a student is struggling? in a particular sport, of course it's important to get them to work on their, their free throw or learning how to kick a ball, but refereeing is also an option to get them physically active and still showing their understanding. Sure. Um, like I think the sport education yeah. model has, a, has options for a lot of those types of things. And from what we've been reading about, not necessarily doing ourselves, although Deirdre uses a bit of sport education, I I don't, um, just because it, I'm not overly familiar with it at this point uh, from a practical standpoint. But from what we've been reading, the sport education model has 
um, quite a lot of potential to promote meaningful experiences. So I think what one of the things that we're saying is that a lot of teachers probably do this and aim to promote meaningful experiences, but it perhaps isn't made explicit. It's yes. just a convenient thing that happens by chance. Byproduct. Right. Yeah. Um, so a lot of us could probably say, yeah, I do that, I do that. But do we really say, yes, that is the thing that guides my thinking? That is the thing that guides the decisions that I make? Uh, what Now here's, I'm going to throw something out of left field here. Okay. Let's just use Ontario for an example. But what percentage of PE programs in Ontario would take this approach? I have no idea. Just throw I it in. I couldn't. I, I, yeah, let's say, yeah, you, 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 I'll say my guess. I would say that less than under 15%. I think if primary and elementary schools are included in that yeah. number, yeah, probably because in Ontario, most of the primary elementary Phys ed is taught by classroom teachers. You're right. And that was, um, I guess, the main focus of my PhD research. So I have yeah. some sort of background on that. Yeah. That's not to say it's not done, but on the whole, it probably wouldn't be yeah. done as well as in others. Uh, yeah, I, I'd such an struggle to put I, a figure I mean, on that. This kind of, again, this is why we've connected, is that we, have, we share similar philosophies and this to me is so meaningful in itself, you know, and I just began to learn about this the last couple of years through our discussions. But um, one idea about time, and we talked about this as well uh, before recording, but that idea of when you really break down the amount of one-on-one -on -one time that a teacher has with a student, generally, let's just say you're, you're lucky, you have two 45-minute classes a week of PE, yeah. so that's 90 minutes. When you look at your whole school year, you're going to have field trips, you're going to have coming and going time, transition time, so you can pretty much take a third of that out, leaving you with 60 minutes of contact time per week. And this, these are rough, rough numbers. So then when you look at the amount of one-on-one -on -one time that a teacher has with their students per year, it would be roughly 2,160 minutes or one hour and 23 minutes on average per year, one-on-one -on -one time with each student. Okay. So then you look at over the course of elementary school, a teacher has five years with the kids, for example. Most kids will be in the program the whole time. So a teacher has an average of about six and a half hours over five years with each student one-on-one -on -one time. And that's if they like the student and right. they actually give them time. Right. But when you really break down the numbers and the time that you have with each student and you really think about that, it becomes, to me, it's pressing. Like you've got to maximize your use of time. And to me, this model allows you, no, sorry, it's not a model. This approach, <laughs> well <done. laughs> this approach or framework allows you to maximize time by really investing time and energy into getting to know the students and what they need. Yeah. Um, I guess my, my initial response is that I could spend one really good minute <laughs> with a student or 10 really wasteful minutes with a student and, you know, have very different outcomes. So um, in terms of the time that we spend with, with them, um, you know, it's, 
I would also say if social interaction is one of the key foci, then we have to think how much quality time are they spending with their peers and yeah. uh, and those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I, it could help. It's, it's certainly since I've been using these ideas in the way that I work with pre-service teachers, it's certainly made my teaching much more coherent. Yes. The messages that I um, emphasize much more coherent. Yeah. Um, and so I think students really come out of a course that's taught by me knowing this is, this is what Tim has emphasized, this is how he does it, this is how it fits with his philosophy, yeah. this is how I can make it work in a, in a program rather than sort of cherry-picking all of the, these great ideas and there are so many from different fields but this has helped me yeah. be able to do this and you know we spoke about our philosophies and you know I think working with a lot of pre-service teachers who have to do writer teaching philosophy so many times as part of their course requirements but I think to many of them they just think well that's great I've written it I've passed that assignment now what do I do with it yeah, but I know that you and many of us out there use our teaching philosophies to help guide our practice and to make that coherent vision. But if that's explained to them and modelled that this is this is my philosophy, this is how I make it, uh, this is how I enact it in practice, this is how I help it make my decisions. If we explain that to teachers, to future teachers, they can then see how teaching isn't just a matter of doing the way that I was taught or doing what I observed. Yeah. Um, in those 12 years, there's a lot more to it and I need to really interrogate what I believe and what yeah. I understand and what I value and think about approaches that I can take to, to make sure that those values are conveyed in conjunction with what students value. And, yeah. and I guess the, the province or state values in terms yeah. of the curricular. But this, this framework still allows you to draw upon TGFU and game sense yeah. and sport education yep. and cooperative learning. Yep. So that's one of the things is that sometimes, you know, sometimes t what I have found, and this is not a hack on teachers, but I have found that some teachers get very TGFU focused only and everything they do is TGFU based or game sense based. And it's that idea that you know, when I was teaching, I take, and I don't even, I don't say, oh, today I'm going to use these elements from TGFU mm. or these elements from cooperative learning. It just is good pedagogy. And I draw upon different models. And when I think about it afterwards and I reflect, I can say, oh, that was actually a bit of TGFU I was doing. I don't think about it at the time. I don't actively construct which models I'm going to use. But again, the important takeaway value that I hope teachers listening um, think about is if you're a TGFU fan, well, you can still integrate TGFU into this framework. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. Uh, a master's student that um, is on our team, Kiara Griffin, um, who's based in Ireland, she's, she was a newly qualified teacher and she um, did her master's thesis on implementing a TGFU unit with some students um, in Ireland. But... Uh, using the meaningful criteria to help her make decisions. And, uh, yes, yeah, she found it quite uh, powerful in the end. Yeah. It, took, it definitely took some some tinkering. Yeah. Uh, particularly as a new teacher, you 
she was learning to teach, learning to teach using TGFU and learning to teach <laughs> using these meaningful yeah. um, experience elements. Um, so it definitely took time and was not without her hiccups. But at the end, she felt that she was creating a really um, – she came out with a very coherent uh, approach um, to how she she dealt with her classes. Right. Um, so for new teachers, it could help them – become more coherent in uh, in the way that they approach classes. Yeah. So we're I know you've got to we've got about seven more minutes and you're gonna okay. be heading back on the train. Yeah. So let's consider this part one. Okay. Okay, because there's so Sounds much more that I want to talk to you about. <laughs> no, uh, me too. It's been um, fantastic. So for those people listening, this is just part one of Tim Fletcher and I um, you know just kind of sharing a discussion about uh, kind of the areas of, of PE that we're really interested in. But um, I guess I'll put you in the hot seat to leave. Okay. okay? And now you, you've given me, um, you've, you've spoken about two books uh, that really impacted you, Developing a Pedagogy of Teacher Education, and the other one was Teacher. School Teacher. School Teacher. So now I'm going to challenge you to identify a book outside of education that has just a, a book, it can be anything, a fiction book that, that you've really enjoyed, whatever. Yeah. But just what's one of your favorite all-time books outside of education? Catch-22. Tell us about it. Uh, Joseph Heller, by Joseph Heller, uh, about World War Two and just the absurdity of the whole thing and how just when you think you're getting ahead, <laughs> yeah. um, perhaps you're not. So... Um, I don't know. I found it hilarious. Yeah. Uh, I found it quite sad yeah. at the same time. But that's, that's one of the only books that I've gone back to time and time again and will keep going back to. And one of the, the reason why I ask this okay. is, is to me, um, it's so – a lot of what I do is to, you know, look outside of PE and education for excellence. And it can come in many forms, but I believe that when we open our eyes to the world and we look at the world and everything we can learn from it, there is always something that you can extrapolate and pull back to your teaching that is very applicable specifically to what you do. Yeah. Um, it's funny, the, the topic, I just finished uh, the term, the winter term there at Brock, and the last uh, topic that I did with the class I teach on reflective practice in physical education was coming up with a metaphor for your teaching. Cool. And it was amazing the images and situations and stories or moments or whatever that students were able to use from their lives or their life experiences that helped them um, come up with some ideas that might help to shape their philosophy. So mine is like uh, backpacking. Yeah. Um, being a world traveler, which I did in yeah. my early, well, not necessarily world traveler, but certain parts of the world. Um, but, yeah. you know, it, the main thing to me was it's about, it's about the people you meet. Yes. That's the first thing. Uh, it's being open to new experiences and, and to change. Uh, it's being, or getting caught up in moments and sort of forgetting all sense of time and those sorts yeah. of things and just sort of relishing those. Um, and the last point is, you know, whenever I come back from a trip away, I think, wow, that was good. And it's never a case of, well, I'll tick that off the list. It's a realisation of how many more places I have to see. Yes. And so in terms of teaching, you can think that you've got something 
figured out reasonably well, yeah. but then it becomes, wow, there's so many other things that I still don't know or I want to figure out or yeah. delve into a little bit more deeply. Yeah. So uh, Artie Camion. Okay. You know, Artie from I've heard the name, yeah. So Artie used yeah. the metaphor. He, oh, yes, In yes, my yes, podcast, yes, he yes. said, here's my metaphor, everybody. If you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. Okay. There, full stop. Okay. <laughs> and I said, okay, thank you for that, Artie. Um, the other thing that I just want to mention on what you talked about, those experiences traveling, is is uh, Tim Ferriss did a great blog post um, where he broke down time. And rather than looking at life uh, in a particular way, he said, look at life as in time left. So if you, in your teaching career, you have 25 more years to teach, um, you look at it like when you're on summer vacation, you only have 20 more summer vacations, <laughs> right. which means that if you live away from your hometown and you only visit your hometown every three years, for the rest of your life, you only have 10 more visits back home. And it puts life into different perspective Definitely. so that when you're back home and it's your 10th last visit, you're going to look at that visit with fresh eyes. Hmm. So that idea of world traveling how many more world trips will you go on? Maybe six? Not too many, yeah. Right? Seven? Who knows? But yeah. when you look at life in that way, it changes your perspective. So I'll leave everybody with that. Uh, again, this is just part one, uh, which could be a five-part series. We don't know at this point, but maybe we can record in June when I come back. But I'm going to start charging thank you, a thank fee. Thank you very, very much, Tim. Uh, Tim, just say bye-bye to everybody. Okay. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. And uh, thanks for every, everybody for listening, and I hope you come back and listen to future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.